you to open your Bibles to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, we're going to start with verses 11, we're going to read through 15, 11 through 15 of Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, in the gracious, holy, magnificent name of Jesus, we come before you and thank you for taking us from every background, every walk of life, and brought us here together in this room to hear your word in this moment. May the word go forth and accomplish your purpose with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm grateful to be here to preach again. It's been a while, and I miss it. I miss coming up here, even though I kind of made a sort of career change, but I miss being in this pulpit, and I miss preaching to each and every one of you. So I'm very, very grateful, and we really need to be thankful and, and realize how blessed we are as a church. There are some pastors that hold their pulpits very close to their hearts. It's like a little kingdom that they have. But I'm grateful that Pastor Scott uh, and any of the pastors that we've had uh, are not like that at all. Well, I told him that I would make sure that we were out by nine tonight. And I don't have my watch. See, I, I forgot my watch. And, and the clock's not up in the back, so Lord knows how long this is going to go. Uh, but last Monday is when I really decided what the Lord wanted me to preach about today. And I was, it was Monday, and I was thumbing through some videos, and I found this YouTube channel, and it caught my attention because although he's in another country, he's, he's a lawyer, but he also does videos, or videos for video games. Video game videos, does that make sense? Video game videos, and, and it, just, it just caught me as being a little weird that a, that a lawyer would spend his time doing all that. And so I just started watching, and I found a reaction video. You ever see a reaction video on YouTube or Facebook? You know what a reaction video is? It's where somebody has a camera and they're filming the reaction of a third person. All right, so you'll see those videos if you see service members coming home and surprise their daughters or their spouses or their sons. and they, That's a reaction video. You get to see how excitable that they are. Or you see a, a dog get excited when a service member comes home and you know, we tear up and think it's really sweet. This was a reaction video that he made in response to a video game announcement. And it's interesting because if you know anything about the video game world, last week at this big convention was called E3, and E3 is where all the major developers come together in one spot and make these big announcements about what's coming down the pike for them. They, think they dump millions of dollars into their presentations. It's a big show, lots of glitz, lots of fanfare, and basically you know, what they do there on those stages will end up determining how well they sell their games. Well, this particular YouTuber has a channel that's designed around one particular game that he loves so much. I'm not going to tell you who he is. Uh, in fact, his YouTube handle name is actually based off of this game. 
And so while they were making this announcement, he had a, he had a reaction video of himself. So he had a camera as he was watching the screen of this announcement. And I saw him because as they started teasing it out and the logo for the game started coming across the screen, his jaw dropped. This was it. This was the moment he was waiting for. His eyes got wide. He started trembling. He, fists were raised up and he was shaking. And when they announced the game and they showed a little bit of the gameplay, he jumped out of his chair and started screaming and hooting and hollering and running around. And he started crying. He was that excited about the coming of this video game. And that's when the Lord spoke to me. Do you ever have those moments when the Lord clearly speaks to you? I'm not talking about the audible voice or anything, but you just know the Lord is talking to you. It was at that moment, because I was kind of laughing at this guy, and the Lord said, I wonder, do you get that excited about the coming of my son? You see, he was excited at the coming of a video game that he loves so much. And he has sunk his entire life and his investments into this game. And just the mere announcement of the game, which is not coming until November of this year, got him so excited that he was jumping up and down with joy and crying just at the thought of it. And God said, do you get that excited about the coming of my son? And I knew I had to preach on this message. Do we, Christian, get excited at the thought that Jesus is coming back? I often wonder if we get so caught up in life that we fail to give it much thought. We fail to realize that the second coming of Christ is the goal of human history. It's essential, essential to our salvation. There's no second coming, there is no final salvation for us, and we are hopelessly lost. Do we even fathom or realize the second coming of Christ is so important to us that God commands us to be an eager, hopeful expectation of his coming? Do we realize that? It's so important that we wrap our minds around the concept of the return of Christ. If there is no return, there is no salvation. And everything that we hope for on this earth is pointless. Now, I don't really have, you know, three points in a poem today. I do have a couple of points. And one of them is the second coming of Christ, I mentioned this, is the goal of history and essential to salvation. You see, Titus reaffirms the truth that Jesus is coming back. He says there in verse, uh, verse 13 that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, that is the pivotal moment in history. Because let me put it like this. If Jesus is not coming back, there's no judgment. If God's not going to intervene in this world, the people are left with no hope, no future, nothing. There is absolutely nothing. What is there to look forward to if Jesus Christ is not coming back? Have you turned on the news lately? Are we getting better as a people? Is that what you want to look forward to for here on out through eternity? Absolutely not. But Jesus promises to end that with his coming. But you know, people will fill in the gaps if they don't believe that Jesus is coming back. You get social constructs like social Darwinism. 
survival of the fittest. All meant to give me as the individual some purpose in this life because without the return of Christ, there is no purpose in my life. So sin finds a way to fill in those gaps because we can't trust in Christ, right? That's what sin does. It keeps us from following Christ. So it creates these constructs like social Darwinism, survival of the fittest, might is right. Hedonism, nihilism, which means it doesn't matter, just do whatever you want because nothing matters, you don't matter, this world doesn't matter. People believe that. Fascism, Nazism, thinking about the religion of humanism. Back in 1933, you had Humanist Manifesto I. Two others had followed, but you had Humanist Manifesto I, 1933. We learned all the mistakes of the past. We just ended the war to end all wars, which was what? World War I. The war to end all wars. We've learned from our mistakes. We have a little education. We've got a bright future. 1933, we signed that. Shortly thereafter, what happened? World War II. Way worse than World War I. Nuclear proliferation, all kinds of rise of dictatorships across the world. So then in 1973, we had to kind of revise it a bit. We have Humanist Manifesto 2, which says there is no deity who will save us. We are responsible for who we are and who we are going to be. They really doubled down on that. Then in 2003, we have Humanist Manifesto number 3. It's a constantly evolving document because sin is trying to find purpose and meaning for us in anything other than Jesus Christ. It's the pivotal point that return of Christ is the focal point of human history. And folks, the attack on the second coming of Jesus Christ is attack on salvation itself. Let's look back at, at uh, Titus. Let's start with verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stop there. You see the two appearings? There's two appearings in this passage. The first appearing is the grace of God has appeared. What is the appearing that he's talking about? The first coming of Jesus Christ. It's where he comes and he, he's born of a virgin physically. He lives this life righteously without sin. He lived it. He modeled it. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And then he died for us. He was buried and he was raised from the dead and ascended on high. That's the first coming of Christ. The first appearing. But then we have the second appearing, which is verse 13. The blessed hope. The appearing of the glory, and, and I don't think he could say this any more exuberant, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's reaffirming that Jesus is coming back. They go together hand in hand. You cannot believe one without believing the other because the two are intertwined with each other and very, very necessary. Uh, look over at Hebrews chapter 9, if you would. We'll head back to Titus, but let's look at Hebrews 9. We're going to read verses 27 through 28. Uh, Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment... 
so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's two parts to what we call salvation. Those of us who, who's been through DTP, raise your hand. Okay, especially DTP1, right? Okay, so I want to make sure this is a refresher course for you guys, right? So we have initial sanctification. You remember that initial sanctification, progressive sanctification? Initial sanctification. That's when God brings you to faith. That's when he opens up your heart, he regenerates you, he, see, he helps you to see the glory of Jesus Christ, and you can't help but believe. It gives you the gift of faith. You are sanctified initially. Positionally, you are saved before God. There is no one that can take you out of the Father's hand. It's God's grip on you, not your grip on God. Initial sanctification. But then there's also progressive sanctification. God's not done with us yet. Thank the Lord for that, right? God's not done with me yet. So he initially sanctifies me. I'm positionally right with him. But then over the course of my life, he is conforming me to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's progressive sanctification. Y'all remember that now, DTP. There's going to be a quiz afterward. That is salvation. Not one, not the other. A lot of people think the gospel is just how I come to Christ, but then it's not for me anymore once I'm saved. The gospel or sanctification is not the, it's the ABCs of our faith all the way through to the letter Z. You can't take one without the other. If you remove the second coming of Jesus Christ, you remove salvation. Because we must be like Christ. That is the goal. We have to be like Christ. And that's what this is all about. Now you say, well, Brian, what happens when I pass away before that's happened? Well, the moment you are called to heaven by Christ, you are sanctified at that moment, fully and completely in Jesus Christ. You just get fast-tracked a little bit. That's why we rejoice, although we're sad that we miss those who have gone on. We rejoice for them. They've been promoted. There's like Christ right now far more than you'll ever be on this planet, even though Christ is sanctifying you as we speak. But if you take one away, you take all of it away. That's why it is so important the Bible commands us again and again to fix our hope on the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, we are commanded to live in hopeful expectation. You remember in Titus 2, in verse 13, he says that the return of Christ is our blessed hope. Not just any hope, it's our blessed hope. Maybe we should talk about hope for a second. Let's back this up, and I'm sure if you've been in Bible study more today, you might know the definition of biblical hope, but I want to make sure that we get this. It's important. See, we use hope, the word hope, differently than the Bible uses the word hope. Okay, when we use the word hope, we're crossing our fingers that something's going to happen. We use it kind of three ways. We say, I hope for something. We're just expressing a desire for something good to happen in the future. Like, I hope my wife will come home early. Never said that. Never said that with four boys in the house. I hope my wife comes home early. It's a hope, right? It's a desire that I want something to happen in the future. I hope my wife comes home early. You can also express hope as the thing that you desire. So I can rephrase it and I say, my hope is that my wife will come home early. Or I can use the word hope as the reason why my desires will come to pass. So my wife's on a trip. She took a plane, left me alone with the four boys while she went out of state. 
and she's on the way home, and I'm hoping really bad that she comes home early. And I'll say, a good tailwind is my only hope that my wife will come home early. These are the ways that we use hope. Now, what is the commonality in all those things? Uncertainty. There's no certainty in anything that I said. Hope my wife comes home early. I hope my wife gets a good tailwind because then she'll come home early. There's no certainty whatsoever. It's a wish. It's a crossing the fingers. Biblical hope is something completely different. It does want and desire something good in the future. But not only does it desire something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And not only does it expect it to happen, it's confident that it will happen. There's a moral certainty rooted in the concept of biblical hope. What do I mean by moral certainty? It transcends logic. It transcends reason. Those can be a part of it, but it transcends those things. Biblical hope is rooted in the nature and the character and the promises of a faithful God. You see why it's certain? God never changes. God's character is good. You list all of the characters, the attributes, and the qualities of God. All of his promises are rooted in who he is. We sometimes get a misconception of God. We think of, when we think of the Ten Commandments or some of the rules that God has given in Scripture, we think that God is just sitting on his throne and thinks, what am I going to do with these people? All right, don't kill. That's a good one. And, and it's just something external that he just kind of puts on us. All of the things that flow from God, his word, his commandments, his statutes, his precepts, his promises, they're all rooted in who he is as God, his character, his goodness, his love. That's why the Apostle Paul says that all of God's promises are yes and amen. They're sure because God is sure. They're good because God is good. You can trust them because you can trust the one who made them, God Almighty. That's biblical hope. So you see, it's not finger-crossing, I hope for the best. It's not, it's not nail-biting when you see a kicker get positioned on the field to kick a 40-yard field goal when there's five seconds left in the Super Bowl. That's uncertain. I hope he makes it. Or I hope he doesn't make it, whichever side you fall on. That is an uncertain human way of looking at hope. God never leaves you with uncertainties. That's not who he is. He wants you to be certain. And he wants you to be so certain that he roots it all in who he is. His goodness. His grace. So what he says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is saying that you can be completely, totally certain that Jesus is coming back. Why? He's great and he's our Savior. You can trust it. And it's not something brand new that just came out of, the, uh, out of the New Testament. You have to turn there, but 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Peter says, God, God caused us to be born again into a living hope. That's just any hope. It's not a dead hope. A dead hope is a wish. That's where you cross your fingers and hope for the best, right? That's the term we use, hope for the best. This is a living hope. It's active it fuels us. It fortifies us. It gives us life because who's the one who's alive that we're waiting on? 
Jesus Christ. Psalm 42, verse 5. Why so downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I love that passage so much. Sometimes I forget to encourage myself in the Lord when I'm going through some stuff. Anybody with me on that? You just forget. And, and here, David is in turmoil. The psalmist is in turmoil. He's got people around him that want to kill him. Things are not turning out the way he wanted to be. He was anointed to be king, and yet he was not on the throne. He's being chased and harassed by the usurper on the throne, Saul. He was, he was in a position that he shouldn't have been in. He was trying to kill David. He was chasing him all around the countryside. David came this close to dying several times. His own family turns against him because of the uncertainty of life. Trusting in people, they will fail you every single time. Trusting in circumstances, they will fail. They might help you out for a short period of time, but the rug will be pulled out from under you. It just happens because they're uncertain. The psalmist knew that. That's why he said, wait a second. Why am I downcast, oh my soul? I'm putting my hope in all this stuff that's creating turmoil within me. It's uncertain. I know what I need to do. Hope in God. He's certain. His promises are certain. He'll never fail you. Jesus said he will never leave you nor forsake you. There might be times when God brings you to the point where you think he may have left you. I've been there. It's not exactly a fun place. But then God shows you that he's been there all along. He reorients your mind. I like to, you know, you can do with children when they're not paying attention to you and you're trying to give them a stern talking to and they're kind of looking around. You grab them by the chin, right? You grab them by the chin, you turn their head, and you get really close so they can feel the breath, your breath on their face. And I just feel like that's what God does with me sometimes. He turns my chin and says, ho, ho, I'm right here. I'm the one you're supposed to be looking at, not that. That's why you're in turmoil. You look to me. But the passage and the command that we're given time and time again is that we put our hope in the coming of Jesus Christ. And not just any kind of hopeful. I like to call it hopeful 2.0. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I know we're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but just bear with me. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 11. Peter talks about the return of Christ in, in all of his books, First and Second Peter. And he puts such a great emphasis on us placing our hope in that. Uh, our BF, my BFG is going through the book of First Peter right now. We've learned that the purpose of First Peter is that Peter's warning everyone, look, the trials and persecutions are coming. I see it happening. It's starting to happen in Rome, and it's just a matter of time before it spills out to the provinces. You need to be ready for it. Here's how you ready, get ready for it. Place your hope firmly in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is coming. And now we have 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness, godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, 
and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Stop right there. This is such a fantastic passage you don't even know. He talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to get to some of these other aspects in just a second. But I want us to key in on verse 12 where he says, waiting for. Are you waiting for the return of Jesus Christ? Is it more than just a mere thought in your mind, but you're actually waiting for Jesus to come back? It's a, an expectation for believers for the, the return of Christ. Are you waiting for it? He assumes that we are waiting for. And then he takes it up a notch. This is the 2.0 part of it. And he says, hastening the coming, uh, the coming of the Lord. It's like you, you expect it. You believe it's going to happen, but now you're hastening. I don't want you to think in your mind by hastening it means you're going to make it happen. That's a lot of people have taken that and, and have kind of misconstrued what that means. But hastening gives that the, the sense of not only do you expect it, not only do you want it, but you want it badly. You want it now. You want it soon. You're not only waiting for the return of Christ, you're hastening for it. You think about it. It goes through your mind. You want Jesus to come back. You want him to come back badly. I was thinking about um, I think about the time when I was working at the courthouse, working for an appellate judge, and oftentimes you know, I get some of these crazy cases that are really easy to deal with, and you throw them away, and and then you get some that are really difficult. And I was in every case that I got, I, I always pray for the litigants and the people that were involved. Just a quick prayer, and, and I was reading a particularly terrible case involving children, and uh, just reading for this, I just started crying for these poor kids. So I was reading their trial testimony and, and their depositions that they had, the things that were done to them and whatnot. It was just horrible, horrible stuff. And I wanted to pray for them. But I, just, I was so overcome by emotion just reading that stuff. Not just reading. I'm not even there in the room with them. I just reading. I was so overcome with emotion. I had to stop and just say, just come, Jesus. Come fix this. Please don't wait any longer. God, please send your son. That is what this, the sense of this verse means. So we're not just waiting and, and, and expecting Jesus to come back. But we want it so badly. We turn on the news and we see bad news. That's all that it is, right? It's all bad news and everybody's fighting this person and that person. You get the talking heads that make a lot of noise, blah, blah, blah. And it's just a bunch of nonsense. And our first reaction is to do what? Curse the darkness, right? Throw our fists out there. How dare this happen? I can't believe that person did that. Why can't we believe it? Why are we so surprised when sinful people act in sinful ways? It's always kind of a shocking thing to me. Like it's come to this revelation. This person is acting in a sinful way. Well, yeah, they're apart from Christ. They need Christ. But when you see all this stuff, it makes us want to say, come now, please, Lord Jesus, come. So we're waiting for, we're hastening. You want it bad. Then Peter kind of gives us these two stages of the second coming. He talks about, uh, starting with verse 11, it says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. So let's maybe look up one verse. Let's go to verse 10. But the day of the Lord, it's the coming, this is the end. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then he gets into verse 11. Since all these things are going to happen, 
what sort of people should we be? And he wasn't really asking a question. It's rhetorical. You know this is going to happen. When Christ comes back, all of this stuff is going to happen. Who should you be in light of all this? Well, the answer is, it's like a duh. I'm going to be somebody that's sold out for Jesus Christ in this life. I'm looking for, I'm waiting. I want him to come back. Everything is going to be dissolved. Now, I know the first thought is a little bit of fear. It's going to be scary. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be nasty. And it kind of is. But you, believer, who are waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ, are not destined for God's wrath. You will be protected from it. He will carry you away while he accomplishes his goal. You are safe and secure in Jesus Christ. You know, I think about, and, and what God is doing here is more than just a natural disaster. I know some theologians in the past have tried to explain this away. You know, they don't want to believe in the return of Christ. They don't want to believe in God's judgment, that God's going to change things. They don't want to believe it. So they'll explain it away saying, well, this is obviously some kind of crazy natural catastrophe and the world's just going to destroy itself. Or some crazy person is going to put their finger on the button and send the nukes flying everywhere and the world will be completely uninhabitable. And that's not, that's not anything that the Bible is describing. This is God's act of bringing an end to this sin-laden world. Every bit of it is going to be burned up. Every bit of it that we hate. Every bit of it that rises up against God. That asserts itself against him. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned up. But you are eagerly waiting for that. Why? And he goes into verse 13. We are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I just, you don't have to turn there, but I want to take us back real quick to Psalm chapter 102 and verse 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. The offspring shall be established before you. Isaiah 65 and verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. I don't want to remember some of the things that happened on this earth. I don't remember all the things that happened on this earth. I made some real whopper of decisions in my life, and I don't want to remember them in eternity future. God said, guess what? You're not going to remember them. Everything I'm doing is going to be completely new. Every little bit of sin that has invaded and infected this world will be completely and utterly destroyed. But you, like Isaiah 65 says, will dwell securely. Because God never changes. In fact, he, Peter takes it up a notch and he says, in which righteousness dwells. I love that word, dwells. In the Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar, but this word is pretty awesome that Peter uses here. The word for dwell in Greek is oikeo, and it just means like at home or occupying a home. And I walked into the home, I'm occupying the home. That's oikeo. But then Peter doesn't use that exact word. He takes that word and he adds a preposition to it, which intensifies the word. It's kat oikeo. 
It's an intensification. It doesn't mean just settle in your house. It doesn't mean just occupy your house. It means you're going to settle down now. You're not just walking in the house and occupying the surroundings. You're going to settle down. You're going to sit down. You're going to relax. And you're going to be comfortable. That's where righteousness is going to be. It's going to take its root firmly in what God is doing here. And you're going to be with it. It's an amazing word when you think about this. He could have used anything, but by inspiration of the Spirit, God is encouraging us that the new heavens and the new earth is going to be so radically different. It's going to, the righteousness is going to dwell here completely and you with it. That's why we wait and long for the second coming of Christ. Because it's going to be completely new. Uh, turn one more to uh, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, look at verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. John was given an amazing vision. He says in verse 1 of chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Look at verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that enough to make us shout? To make us excited? To make us long for the return of Jesus Christ? That sin will be completely gone. It will never tempt you once more. This body that we've been living with, which was racked by sin and giving us problems, shall be no more. We'll have something brand new. Something without sin. And we will dwell in a place where righteousness dwells. Where there will be no tears. For God will wipe it away. And all of this stuff that we went through in this world, we will remember it no more. It won't matter. I can see now, thinking that through, that can be like that guy in the YouTube video. When I think about Jesus Christ coming and doing this, I get excited. That's the kind of hopeful expectation that Scripture commands us. Do you eagerly await the second coming of Christ? It's a, not just a matter of belief in a doctrine. I'm not talking about that. If you picked out anything from this, know that your belief in the second coming of Christ must go beyond a mere mental assent to a doctrinal statement. Do you believe it in your heart? Do you hold it dear? Do you long for it? It's a crucial test of the genuineness of our faith. Because remember, without the second coming, our salvation will remain incomplete. Here's a couple questions that you can ask yourself to see if you truly eager await the second coming of Christ. Number one, does your mind return frequently to the truth of Christ's return? Does your mind return frequently to the truth of Christ's return? Number two, when your mind does turn to the truth of Christ's return, does your heart want it? Does your heart throb within, within you? When you think about the return of Jesus Christ, how do you feel? Feelings are okay when they're spirit-motivated. How do you feel? Does it make you excited? Number three, do you pray for his coming? Do you pray for his coming? Have you ever prayed for Jesus to come? Reminded of, of John in the book of Revelation. We're not going to turn here, but in Revelation 22, the vision is ending. 
He's seen it all. Judgments and trumpets and bowls and fire and brimstone and nasty kind of stuff. And then he sees a triumphant Jesus Christ who brings an end to all of it, renews everything, new heaven, new earth, absolutely brand new. He is triumphant. He is king. He hands it all over to God and sits down at the right hand of the Father. And the vision is coming to an ending. And I think John says, hang on, hang on. I don't want to lose that vision. I want to see Jesus Christ. But it's going away. Even so, amen, come, Lord Jesus. He remembers what he saw and he wants it. Do you pray for his coming? Now, if you gave yourself a little self-analysis of those three questions, and maybe you've come up a little short. I know I have. Well, here's some answers of why you may have come up short. One, you may have trusted in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, but you were not well taught about the second coming of Jesus Christ. You just weren't taught about it. And I think that was me, back 15 years old, in 1988, we were attending a charismatic church at the time, and my BFG knows this, so this is repeat information for you all. Uh, 1988, book was circulating around. 88 reasons why the Lord is coming back in 1988. Okay, it was super spiritual because it was going to happen on a Sunday, so you know that's legit. You know, this is this Rosh Hashanah, it fell on a Sunday, this is amazing, we're going to, in worship, we're going to whip ourselves up into a frenzy, and we're going to wait for Jesus to come. I was 15 years old, I'm like, I don't want Jesus to come back. I don't know if I'm ready for that to come back. I mean, I was a believer, I really, truly look back on my life, and I, I know I was a believer, but I was never taught very much about the second coming of Christ. I mean, getting what you claim was far more important than Jesus coming back. So that might be you. Or number two, maybe you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you've grown cold and distant. have not felt for some time that Christ is precious. And that seeing him would be the fulfillment of all your longings. I think a lot of us fall into that category right there. We grow cold. We grow a little distant. We don't truly remember how precious Christ is. We don't remember the fact that seeing Jesus coming back is going to fulfill all of our longings. We get caught up in the love of the world. This love affair with the world and the things of the world, we fall in love with it. We fall in love with our routines. And maybe it just happens subtly. Before long, it's been forever since we thought about the return of Christ. We don't want to let go of what we have. We want to hang on to it. I remember one of our youth group members back in 1988 saying, I just got married. I don't know when Jesus come back. I just got a, I just got a car. You know, that's a big thing when you're 15 and 16. I just got a car. I don't want Jesus to come back yet. These old guys want Jesus to come back because they've already had their lives. I remember when I thought, well, maybe you got a point. I don't know. Because we were clinging to what this world had to offer. And forgetting the fact that when Jesus comes back, when you see him, you will realize how meaningless all of this actually is. And for all of us that have been clinging to that stuff, my goodness, are we going to feel shame when Jesus comes back? And we look into his face. I mean, we know we're forgiven. We know the blood of Jesus Christ covers us for all sin. How are we going to feel when we look into the eyes of Jesus Christ when our entire lives we've been clinging to this world? 
So much so that we no longer look for the return of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you can't plan and do things with this world. I mean, I'm a, I'm a lawyer that practices in planning. I mean, that's what I do. There's no dichotomy between planning and being involved in the world and looking for the return of Christ. But what trumps what? Does the return of Christ and the hope that you feel in that trump the hope that we have in our 401ks, our bank accounts, our job situation? Are we desperately clinging to something that's going to be dissolved as we sang this evening and as we read in the scripture? It's all going away and something way better is going to be in its place. Maybe you've never submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're in desperate need of the new birth. Maybe you don't look for the return of Christ because you're not looking for Christ at all. That's you. Today is the day of your salvation. Trust in him. Call out to God. Plead for his mercy in Jesus Christ. You will be saved. And he will show you just how precious Jesus Christ actually is. Call upon him. And you may be thinking, well, you know, what else about this? I mean, the, the scriptures we were looking at talk a lot about holiness and a lot about godliness as we wait for the return of Christ. And you're right, I didn't really get into that because we don't have a lot of time to get into all of this. I mean, this could be a real long series. But here's the point. If you pick out anything, it's this. If you eagerly wait for the return of Jesus Christ, godly living, holy living will follow. When you're having your hope firmly in Jesus Christ, eagerly anticipating his return, you're going to walk right before him because you want to. Because your focus is on how precious he is to you. Holiness and godliness will follow along with it. Now, he didn't say in that passage that we are eagerly waiting in anticipation for godly living. Not at all. And you won't find that anywhere in scripture. What you'll find in scripture is that godly living and holiness is as a result of people who are looking for Christ to come back. Because we want to. We want to please him. We love him. We want to see him come and end all of this. He's worthy of our eager expectation. Titus didn't say it's just a hope. He says it's a blessed hope. As opposed to the cursed hope. There's a lot of cursed hope out there. That the return of Christ is a blessed hope. It's a visible hope. He talks about the appearing of Jesus Christ. Reminded the apostles that when Jesus ascended, they kind of watched him go up. And their mouths were probably up. And an angel just kind of shows up and said, and then a Galilee, what are you doing staring up at the sky? Don't you know that Jesus is going to come back just as you saw him leave? He left bodily, he's coming back bodily, and his return is going to be glorious. I don't have time to really read there, at least I don't think so. I don't have the, the clock up or anything, but I'm reminded of the transfiguration. Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9 talks about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. They go up to a mountain, and Jesus is there, and he's transfigured into his full glory on display. It was brilliant. It was amazing, so much so that, that it's, the scripture says, uh, particularly in Mark 9, they didn't know what to do. I mean, they were, they were frightened. They didn't know what to do. Revelation chapter 1 talks about Jesus coming back in bright white robes with long hair like wool, and his eyes were like burning fire. It's a glorious return. He is the king. 
One more verse I'd like for you to look at, and we'll close with this. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. Second Timothy 4 and verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Folks, Christ needs to come back. You need him to come back. We need to put our hope firmly in the second coming of Jesus Christ. If we don't put our hope firmly on the second coming of Christ, we'll put our hope in other things in this world that are doomed to pass away, bring hardship, bring turmoil, bring disaster. That's all that it is because it's all infected by sin. But we could put that firm hope which is rooted in God himself in the fact that Jesus is coming back. We do that. We can weather the trials of this life. We can weather the persecutions that Peter was talking about in 1 Peter. We can weather the uncertainties that go around us. Like the psalmist said, I'll put my hope in God. And when we eagerly wait for him, Jesus has a crown of righteousness waiting for you. That you'll wear in the place where righteousness dwells. You'll settle in and you'll be at home. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that you give us promises. And not only the promises that you give us, uh, they're rooted in certainties. The certainty of your character. Time and time again, you've promised that you would bring your son to bring salvation. And then you've, warned, you've, you've promised us time and time again that your son would come back to establish the kingdom. So often, God, it's easy for us to get our hope on something other than the return of your son. As I watched that video last week, you definitely gave me the gut check. I pray you would give us that all today. That you'd help us to realize, to know when we're not looking forward to the return of Christ, when we're looking forward to so many other things except him. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us, you would train us, that you would conform us to the image of your Son. That you would help us to see that we need Christ to come back. Help us to hope in him. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.